Hello, everyone, and welcome to the thrilling adventures of Superman, a podcast where Superman still stands for truth, justice, and the American way. This is episode 78, and my name is Michael Bradley. This episode, we will be looking at the 16th storyline from the Superman Daily Newspaper Strip. Also, later on in the episode, we will have the return of the spotlight feature as I shine the spotlight on painter H.J. Ward. Relatively, Ward had few ties to Superman, but he did paint one of the most iconic images of the Golden Age Man of Steel, and was a phenomenal talent besides, so I thought it would be appropriate to give his life a closer look. As mentioned before, Ward's Superman painting was used for the cover of Limited Collector's Edition C31, which reprinted three Golden Age stories, and since we just covered the second of those three episodes, or two episodes ago, and won't be covering the third for quite a ways down the road, now seems like a good time. Also, if I've got my facts right, it was around the time we are at in the coverage that he actually painted that iconic image, so again, now seems like a, an appropriate time. But I don't really have any feedback or emails or anything to go through, hint, hint, so we are going to take a quick break and play a promo for another awesome podcast that you should be listening to, and then we'll come back and get right into the story. For Guy Gardner Podcast. I got a fast connection so I don't have to wait. For Guy Gardner Podcasts. There's always some new site. For Guy Gardner Podcasts. I browse all day and night. For Guy Gardner Podcasts. It's like I'm surfing at the speed of light. For Guy Gardner Podcasts. The internet is for Guy Gardner Podcasts. The internet is for... And sometimes Kyle Rayner Podcasts. Why you think the net was born? Guy Gardner Podcasts. Just One of the Guys is a weekly internet radio show dedicated to bringing you reviews, commentary, and a heartfelt defense of the characters of Guy Gardner and Kyle Rayner, the two Earth-based Green Lanterns who always seem to get dumped on. Over the next several years, I will be covering the Green Lantern books from cover date June 1990 until cover date November 2004. I'll also be covering the Guy Gardner solo series, as well as any other media that catches my fancy. The show can be found on iTunes by searching for Just One of the Guys podcast, or by going to the website justoneoftheguys.lips.com. So be sure to tune in every Friday for a fun-filled look at the Green Lantern Corps, hosted by me, Sean Ingle. It's just as enjoyable as the search for the subject that this song is actually about. Just one of the guys. Libson.com. The sixteenth story from the Superman Daily Newspaper strip was comprised of strips four sixty three to five hundred and ten, and those forty eight strips ran from July eighth to August thirty first, nineteen forty. While this storyline was running. Superman number 6, as well as Action Comics number 28 and 29 were released. The radio show saw Superman helping out Nancy Bardet at Happy Land Amusement Park, and then lending a hand to Jimmy Olsen at Lighthouse Point, going with Lois Lane to Gravesend, and then traveling to Central America, and dealing with Chief Tasso, Kamado, and Bert, and the Mayan treasure. 
The Sunday Strip, meanwhile, polished off The Chosen before launching into a brand new storyline that we will be looking at later this summer. This story was written by Jerry Siegel, and the art was penciled by Wayne Boring and possibly inked by Don Commissaro, which is the same art team from the last storyline from the dailies. And it has been titled King of the Kidnapping Ring. As we open, Metropolis is rocked by a wave of savage kidnappings, or abductions, since they're taking adults. At the Daily Planet, Lois Lane, Clark Kent, and George Taylor talk about how authorities believe Big Bill Bowers is behind the crime wave, but can't prove it. As Lois complains, saying they should simply arrest Bowers without evidence, Taylor gets a call that the police are bringing Bowers in for questioning. In hopes of getting information from Bowers, Taylor formulates a plan to disguise Clark as a hobo and put him in a cell with Bowers. Hopefully he'll earn the crime boss's trust and get information that they'll need to convict. Clark is extremely reluctant, probably still having Vietnam-style flashbacks from the shanking scene in Superman Returns. But Taylor and Lois insist, and arrangements are soon made with the police. While officers continue to interrogate Bowers and have no luck getting any information, Lois runs out and grabs a random bum off the street. When they get back to the planet, Taylor, without offering much by way of explanation, orders the guy to take off his clothes. Without so much as an awkward pause, we cut to Clark putting on the new disguise, thinking the plan will be a huge success, and soon emerges from the changing room, sans glasses, dressed as a hobo. Clark is still unsure of the whole idea, but Lois is so taken that she wants to go along as well. Much to her chagrin, however, Taylor assigns her to interview debutante Brenda Fields in a plot that I'm sure will in no way whatsoever be connected to Big Bill and the kidnappings. So, Clark heads out and is soon, quote-unquote, arrested by a gleeful Sergeant Casey and thrown into a cell with Bowers. Clark pretends not to know who Bowers is and starts to provoke him into a fight but ends up pretending to cower when Bowers says who he is and threatens to punch him in the face. Bowers tells Clark how awesome he is, and then asks what he's in for. Clark responds that the cops simply have a grudge against him, and that if he could only get enough money, he'd blow his stinking town. Thinking he's found the perfect guy for the plan he's got in mind, you know, the plan he's got in mind, Bowers offers Clark $500 if he'll do a job for him. Clark agrees, and when Bowers' attorney arrives, both men are bailed out. As Bowers revels to himself that Clark doesn't know what he's in for, they climb into a limousine and soon arrive at Bowers' palatial estate. Bowers introduces Clark, and I should probably point out that he's calling Clark Shiftless Sam, because that's how Clark introduced himself. But anyway, he introduces Clark to his crew as the newest member of the gang, giving them a subtle wink behind Clark's back. Unbeknownst to Bowers, however, Clark sees the wink and wonders what's up. At that moment, the doorbell buzzes. Bowers' men scurry about, thinking it's the law, but it turns out to be Bowers' tailor, Swenson. Bowers tells Clark that any member of his gang is to be dressed to the nines, and Swenson soon begins measuring Clark for his new duds. After some comments about Clark's physique being more than it seems, Swenson heads out to his truck and soon returns with a brand new suit. Bowers hands it to Clark and tells him to put it on. Clark asks where he can change, and Bowers tells him to change right where he's at. Which, well, this puts Clark in a pretty awful predicament. If he removes his rags, his costume and his secret identity will be revealed. 
So Clark says he doesn't want to get naked in front of a bunch of strangers that he just met, but Bowers' thugs don't like his sissy attitude and start pushing him around, attempting to rip his clothes off. <laughs> Finally tired of the tomfoolery, Bowers steps in and pulls his men off, saying that if Clark wants privacy, he's welcome to it. Once secluded in the next room, Clark uses his super hearing to eavesdrop as Bowers and his men discuss their plan. Bowers tells his men that they plan on using Clark to pick up some ransom from a recent kidnapping. That way, they get the money, but he takes the risk. Once Clark delivers the goods, Bowers plans on killing him and the kidnapping victim, and when the police find the bodies, they will think it's a one-man job, and Bowers and the rest of the gang will be off the hook. Bowers' men congratulate him on such a totally awesome plan that really makes no sense, while in the next room, Clark clenches his fist in livid rage. A fiendish plan, he says. What I can't understand is how any human beings can be so utterly cruel. And speaking of cruel, we switch to the B-plot as Lois arrives at the Fields' mansion, still grumbling about being a woman and having to do the job she's assigned rather than the job she wants, while Clark, as a man, has to do the job he's assigned rather than the job he wants. And no, I didn't misspeak. After getting snippy with the butler, Lois finally meets Brenda. The two get acquainted and decide to go for a walk. But Brenda's father interrupts, forbidding her from leaving the house, saying that he's received a threat that she would be kidnapped. Brenda throws a fit, having realized her father hired a private detective to follow her, and she and Lois storm out. As they leave, they are trailed by Shadow McGinty, the detective that her father had hired. The girls hatch a plan to try and lose the gumshoe and hail a cab. The girls climb in and tell the driver to take them to 23 Skidoo Road. McGinty overhears and hails another cab to follow the first. However, when the two taxis later come side by side at a stoplight, McGinty is surprised to find out that their taxi is empty, as unbeknownst to him, they had crawled out the other side of the cab before it ever left and hid in the bushes, thereby shaking McGinty off their trail. McGinty calls Fields to tell him what happened and is fired for his incompetence. Meanwhile, Brenda and Lois are going on about how there's no way that Brenda would ever be kidnapped, when who should come along but a car full of Bowers' men. Seeing a golden opportunity in front of them, they grab both Brenda and Lois and stuff them into a car. Both women fight but can't overcome their abductors and soon arrive at Bowers' mansion. When they enter the home, Lois berates Bowers, saying that she recognizes who he is and is going to write about what he's done in the Daily Planet. Meanwhile, one of Bowers' men steals a ring from Brenda's finger. And at just that moment, Clark, still sans glasses, mind you, enters the room. He and Lois immediately recognize one another, but both pretend that they're strangers so as to not give up Clark's identity. Or his disguise, I should say. The girls are locked in a room, and one of the men is ordered to stand guard. While Lois tells Brenda there's no need to worry because she recognized Clark and is sure that he'll help them out, Bowers takes Clark and the rest of the men to do the job he told Clark about earlier. They stop at a drugstore, and Bowers uses a payphone to call Fields and tell him to hand over $100,000 in jewels to a guy that will visit the next morning, or he'll never see Brenda again. He promises he'll be shown... Brenda's ring as proof that they actually have the girl, and then hangs up, reveling in his easy money. When Bowers gets back to the car, Clark tells him that if he knew the job involves kidnapping, he never would have agreed. 
but Bowers threatens him, and Clark eventually agrees to get the payment. The next panel, Clark shows up at Fields' house, and I guess this is the next morning, since that's what Bowers said on the phone, but from the strip, it seems just like a little bit later, since there's no real transition. But anyway, Clark shows up, and he shows Fields the ring and gets the jewels. He then promises Fields he'll get his daughter back unharmed, and hey, maybe he'll just get the jewels back too. Returning to the car, Clark hands Bowers the jewels and asks for the $500 promised to him. But Bowers just laughs and says the only thing he'll get is dead. The car then pulls over by a field, and feeling generous, Bowers tells Clark to run for his miserable life. Apparently he does, but all three goons pull out guns, showering Clark in a hail of bullets. Apparently hoping to finish the job, the men then run him over with the car before driving off. Once the car is out of sight, Clark leaps up unharmed. He rips off his outer garments and finally, for the first time all story, decides it's time to go into action as Superman. As Bowers' car speeds along the road, the Man of Steel follows, listening in with the super hearing as Bowers and his men plot to do away with Lois and Brenda. Meanwhile, back at the house, Brenda and Lois are banging on the walls, trying to alert help. The goon guarding them, who we later learn is named Lou, tells them to pipe down, and that when Bowers gets back, they won't ever make noise again. Because, you know, a surefire way to get people to shut up is to tell them that you'll kill them. Later. Anyway, he then, for what seems to be no other reason than plot, goes on to explain that he's being paid $1,000 to make sure they stay where they are. And Barbara replies with an offer of $5,000 to help them escape. Lou at first turns him down, but realizing that $5,000 would buy a whole lot of cannoli, accepts and leads them down the stairs to the front door. As they're leaving, however, they see Bowers' car pulling up to the house. Bowers and his thugs chase them back into the house, and Lou, Brenda, and Lois barricade themselves in a room. Bowers tells his men to smash through the door, but Lou begins shooting through the door, keeping them at bay. Finally, having had enough of his thugs' Nancy boy, I don't want to get shot whining, Bowers charges forward and smashes through the door himself, like a boss. He shoots Lou in the stomach and then turns his gun on Brenda and Lois, intent on finishing them off as well. But at just that moment, Superman finally shows up, climbing through the window behind him. Bowers whirls and fires at the Man of Steel, but he can only watch as the bullets bounce off his chest. Convinced that Superman must be wearing a bulletproof vest, he tries shooting Superman in the face, but has similar luck. Bowers then hurls a volley of tear gas bombs into the room, but a terrific puff from the Man of Steel's lungs and the gas is blown out of the room, much to Barbara's amazement and Lois's boredom. Apparently out of weapons, the Man of Steel then throws a barrel of flour at Superman, and... what? What's that? You don't keep a barrel of flour in your house? Anyway, the Man of Steel catches the barrel and wings it back at the thugs, smashing it on their heads. With the thugs blinded in a cloud of flour, and probably concussed from having a barrel smashed on their heads, Superman tosses his opponents into a closet, telling the girls to lock the door and wait for the police. He then tells them that they'll find the ransom jewels in the car, and leaps out the window before Brenda and Lois can even say, Huh? Later, Clark returns to the Daily Planet to follow the story about the kidnappings and Bowers' capture, but he is stunned to learn the whole story has already been reported, 
and accompanied by Lois Lane's byline. The end. <sighs> Strip 463, this storyline starts out exactly the same as the last storyline from the dailies. The only difference is, this time we're dealing with a, quote, daring string of kidnappings, where last time it was a daring string of robberies. There's really no significant similarities between the two storylines beyond that, but I did find it interesting how the first strips were, were so much the same. You know, we have a series of crimes, and then we cut to the Daily Planet, where Clark is assigned to the case. And I really hope that this isn't the start of a trend, because... Siegel's stories, thus far anyway, have not fallen into the rut of that the radio show is in as far as kicking off stories in the same way, and I'd, I'd really like them to not do that. Uh, but I, I really did like the art in this opening, uh, the opening panel of the strip, though. It's a scene that's set at night, and it's, it, it actually looks like night. There's quite a bit of shading in the background and on the figures to darken up the panel, but you can still, uh, you can still tell what's going on. Strip 464, in the previous strip, Taylor had just finished saying that they didn't have enough proof to arrest Bowers, and yet here Lois says, if everyone knows he did it, why can't they arrest him and convict him? First, Lois, pay attention. But yeah, who needs proof or evidence? Just, you know, throw people in jail on suspicion of wrongdoing, because that's the American way. Strips 465, 466... The whole setup to this story, it's not bad necessarily. Again, one might question the logic and safety of sending in Clark undercover rather than a trained officer or detective, but it's a Superman strip, so I guess we just have to deal with it. But it's just all so comically written, with you know Clark bumbling around as he's forced into the masquerade, and I just I just really didn't care for the tone of it, especially coming from Taylor. Now, granted, we've not gotten a lot of personality from Taylor to this point, but it just didn't fit with what we have seen where he's been portrayed as a much more serious character. And even coming from Lois to this point, I don't think it would feel right. Silver Age Lois, definitely, but not the Lois as she's been portrayed in the last, you know, two-plus years we've covered on the show. Strip 467. And then here... Lois runs down and grabs this guy off the street, and Taylor <laughs> Taylor just tells him to take off his clothes. No explanation, no nothing. Lois just brings him in and says, What do you think? And Taylor responds with, You, take off your clothes. Now, to his credit, Clark chips in with, You'll be well paid for your garments. Which, I'm sure, just left the guy even more confused. And we never see him again after this scene, so who knows what happened to him. Uh, but we did get a nice shot here of Clark. He's in the changing room and pulling off his shirt, and his Superman costume is uh, revealed beneath. Sadly, it's the closest thing we get to a Superman appearance for a long time in the story, but at least it's a nice shot. It, it's not really a shirt rip, but at least a shirt takeoff. <laughs> um, and I also point out that when Clark comes out, his... Uh, he, he's wearing the bum's clothes at this point, and his shirt is unbuttoned down to the middle of his chest. Yet, as we find out later, he's supposedly wearing his Superman costume underneath. And it actually gets worse later when he's actually talking about not being able to uh, change in front of the guys because they'll see his costume. 
but the art shows the top couple buttons of his shirt unbuttoned and no costume showing. There's just a lot of ridiculous things in this story, but this one is especially frustrating, though, since it could have been fixed with just a minor tweak in the art. And, and really worse yet, Clark isn't wearing his glasses. At all. Once he puts on the bum's clothes, we don't see him with glasses until the very end of the story. Lois sees him. Taylor sees him. Bauer sees him as shiftless Sam and a Superman. And no one makes a connection. Now I know, at least from our perspective as a modern reader, that there's more to the disguise than just putting on glasses. There's, you know, body language and posture and vocal inflection and, and et cetera, et cetera. But none of that has been specifically introduced yet. And I'm not sure how they would have gotten around it in the story, save for Clark continuing to wear his glasses while undercover, but it, it really needed to be addressed. I can understand that if Lois sees Clark without glasses for just a fleeting moment, she might not recognize him, but extended periods of time, I just have a lot harder time buying that. And again, I know this is me coming at it from the perspective of a uh, contemporary reader where we have 70 plus more years of Superman in between and, and the glasses and the disguise has become such a major part of the mythology. Maybe it just wasn't back in the Golden Age. Maybe Siegel just didn't consider it to be such a major part of the character. I mean, yes, he's obviously wearing... Uh, the glasses, but even as I think I've talked about recently, the the idea that he has to keep his um, identity a secret and that people can't see him without his glasses are are ideas that are just very very slowly being worked in, and we just haven't seen a lot of them to this point. So who knows? But but still, I really think it needed to be addressed. Jumping to four sixty nine, I liked the banter. Uh, for lack of a better word, between Clark and Sergeant Casey. They haven't brought up brought up the idea of it yet, but much like Clark's relationship with Inspector Henderson in um, Adventures of Superman, I can see Clark and even Lois being friends with Casey, or at least having a mutual respect for their respective positions, and an understanding that they're all working for the greater good, or a common good, even if they don't always see eye to eye on how to get there. So it makes sense that Casey would have fun uh, playfully harassing Clark here when he has the opportunity. Plus it's weird because Casey looks like Fred Astaire in the last panel, although I'm not completely sure what to make of that. Strip 470, we are introduced here to Big Bill Bowers for the very first time. And I'll praise the art again because Bowers is an absolute hoss. Uh, it, it's even more evident near the end of the story when he smashes through the door uh, of his own power. But clearly, Bowers is not a guy you want to mess with, or he will smack you down. Strips 471 to 474. I, I thought this scene was okay, with Clark and Bowers getting to know one another, and then Bowers offering Clark the job. I might complain that Bowers took Clark in a little too quickly, but clearly Bowers never had Clark's best intentions in mind, and was only offering him the job in order to, you know, give him the shaft later, so... I think I'm okay with it. Jumping ahead to 478, there's an interesting line here, and this is where uh, the tailor, Swenson, is measuring Clark for his suit. Bowers' men are giving Clark a hard time still, and one of them says that if the tailor puts shoulder pads in the suit, 
he might actually make Clark look like a real man. But the tailor, who is measuring Clark's waist at that point, says, It's surprising what a splendid physique he actually has. And I talked last episode about Jack Burnley subtly drawing Clark's posture different, and just a minute ago I was complaining about how they hadn't explicitly said much about how Clark disguises himself. But they do seem to be working these things in very subtly, and and maybe not even intentionally or, or with a broader plan in mind. It's sometimes hard looking back at these with, you know, like I said, more than 70 years worth of stories in mind to know what's being worked in intentionally and what's just being brought up and then adapted or or made standard later. But here at least, we get the idea that he wears, you know, frumpier clothes to disguise his physique, which we can add to the posture thing from the comic books story that I added, or that I mentioned last episode. Of course, even with all that, I think my complaint still stands about no one recognizing him without the glasses. That really needed to be addressed somehow, since these things, these other things haven't been pointed out and made official parts of the the character or the mythology yet. Strip 479. Here's the scene I mentioned earlier with Clark fretting over his clothes and, and having his costume revealed. But if you look at the art, his shirt is clearly unbuttoned far enough down that you should be able to see his costume if not the uh, the shield on his chest so it's just it's just absolutely ridiculous uh, strip 480 and 481 I've gone back and forth on whether I like this scene with the guys trying to rip Clark's clothes off and really I wonder if it was even necessary I mean I guess it does add a bit of drama or, or suspense or whatever you want to call it to the story for a couple days but it just really wasn't needed I mean just get on with the story already you know I did like that Bauer stepped up and, and quote unquote saved Clark though from you know from Bauer's point of view it might have been a way of winning Clark confidence but again that's me reading into it they don't actually say that in the text strip 483 there's a panel in this strip where Clark, he's in the next room, right? And he's supposed to be changing, but he's using his super hearing to listen in as the villains plot their villainous plots of villainy. And he's like, he's down on one knee with with his left arm kind of out to the side a little bit, and he's got his right arm up in the air with his fist clenched. I mean, I, have, I just have no idea what he's supposed to be doing. It's like he's... I don't know, doing Rock of Ages or Walk Like an Egyptian or something, but he's he's swearing bloody Kryptonian vengeance against, against the criminals for their dastardly plot. And it's supposed to be a completely serious moment, but it gets the wind knocked out of it completely by this ridiculous pose that he struck. And you know, actually, that's not a, uh, that's a pretty good metaphor for the whole story. I mean, it's supposed to be a very serious story, but there's just so much ridiculousness and... and cornball uh, scenes and dialogue that it's just hard to take it serious. Strip 44, the art in this strip... None of the art in this story is terrible, but it kind of goes back and forth as far as the framing and the poses of the characters. For instance, in this strip we've got this really nice shot of Bowers and he's bragging about his plan and he's got his thumbs tucked into the side of his vest. He's, He's clearly very proud of himself. You know, the way his arms are, his jacket has fallen open, and you can see his holstered gun strapped to his side. It's a really nice, detailed shot that, to me, says a lot about the character uh, in, in subtle ways. 
But if you compare that to that ridiculous pose in the previous strip, you see what I mean. Strip 485, finally we get back to the lowest plot from three weeks earlier. Who knows if the readers even remembered that she was involved at this point. But Lois shows up at the Fields Mansion, complaining yet again about having to do her job. She says, Of all the luck, just because Clark was born a male, he gets all the juicy assignments, while I have to be content with interviewing a ditzy Deb. Now, there was a lot of sexism in the 40s. I get it. But this isn't sexism. Clark was assigned to do a job. He, he was assigned to do what he's doing because he's a male, yes. But this isn't a too-dangerous-for-a-girl situation. I mean, Clark is doing a job that only someone who is a male could have done. If Bowers was a female, only Lois could have played that role. And making matters worse, it's not like Clark wanted to do the job. He was, pardon the pun, bum-rushed into it. So, Lois, stop your whining and do the job you don't want to do, just like Clark is doing the job he doesn't want to do. Strips 46 and 47. Uh, nothing to say about these strips, except that I want to pause and point out that this is the halfway point in the storyline. We are 24 strips, four full weeks into a 48-strip, eight-week storyline, and we haven't had a single scene with Superman. There have been two panels with Clark kind of in costume, as he was in the middle of changing clothes, but other than that, no Superman. I recognize that telling a story in three or four panel installments over the course of two months is very difficult. I mean, I've never done it myself, but I, I can recognize the challenge that that would pose. And I also recognize that likewise it's important to build a story and I and I understand the importance of letting supporting characters do their thing and and I understand we've had Clark Kent even a, a sans glasses Clark Kent pretty heavily featured to this point but people don't read it to see Clark dressed like a hobo they read it to see Superman some read it only to see Superman and I just find it really hard to believe that the syndicate was completely okay with a costumed Superman being absent for the strip for such long periods of time. I haven't talked about it too much on the show, and uh, we never got to it on Legends of the Batman, but Batman obviously had a newspaper strip in the 40s as well, and one of the uh, comments I've seen about that strip as to why it didn't last anywhere near as long as the uh, Superman strip about forgot what I was talking about there for a minute. Uh, but one of the comments I've seen about why it didn't last as long is that there was very little actually with Batman and Robin in the strip. It was a lot of Bruce Wayne and Dick and setting up stories and then dealing with the other characters and such. Um, I haven't read a lot of those myself. I do have all the books, but I never, I just haven't sat down to read them, you know, read the whole series. But I don't know. It it just seems like if you're going to have a strip about Superman, you need to have Superman in the strip and not go a month without that. It it's just weird, but you know, maybe the syndicate felt different. I don't know. Um getting back to my notes and and less uh um commentary and speculation. Strips 488 to 490, the bit with Lois and Brenda crawling out of the cab to lose the detective. It was cute, but 
again, it just doesn't feel like it fits with the tone of the stories we've had in the Superman stories to this point. I mean, it feels more like a, a like a wacky sitcom. I don't know. Maybe that's what Siegel was going for with the storyline. I mean, I guess it's definitely possible. He he has he said on numerous times that he he really liked writing humor and uh, and he liked injecting that into the Superman strip. But I don't. It's just not working for me in the context of the other stories that we've looked at from 1938, 1939, and and then the first uh, three Jumping ahead to strip 493, I liked the panel here of Lois and Brenda fighting back, ultimately fruitlessly, against the thugs. It was a nice moment in the story for both Lois and Brenda, and a really nicely illustrated panel. Unfortunately, turning to the next strip, strips 494 and 495 actually, the separate stories come together, and Lois and Clark come face to face, and yet she doesn't recognize him as anything but Clark despite the fact that he's dressed completely different than when she last saw him. Um, he's still not wearing glasses, and he's even doing the squinty-eyed Superman stare. Uh, sorry to keep bringing it up, but it's just really, really stupid. Jumping to strip 499, not only do these guys gun Clark down with multiple shots from three guns, but they go the extra step and run him over with the tire going right across Clark's midsection. It's it's often overlooked how violent Golden Age comics really are. I mean, we've got people getting shot and knifed and, and killed left and right. People are getting run over. Several issues ago, there were they were uh, planning on chopping up Superman's body with an axe. Of course, it's a more uh, subdued or, or cartoon form of violence. You know, definitely not on the level of, say, a Roadrunner cartoon where you hit somebody with a mallet and all that happens is bird fly around their head. And while while it is violent, it is still much tamer visually compared to today's comics with, you know, limbs getting ripped off and blood spewing and holes in the head and the like. But still, when you really look what's look at what's happening, you know, Superman getting run over is going to be funny to kids. But from the character's point of view... They just killed this guy, and now they're running him down. Which is kind of disturbing when you really put yourself into the story and look at it from the character's point of view. Strip 500, on a happier note, finally, for the first time, all story, and for the first time in more than a month and a half, as these were originally published, Superman finally shows up in his own stinking comic strip. Oh, hi, Superman. How you doing? <sighs> Sadly, and very sadly, in fact, he's only around for two strips, and all he does is chase after Bowers. And apparently he doesn't try too hard, because we get all the exposition with Lou, and the girls, you know, taking him in, or talking him into betraying Bowers, and then Bowers finally shows up, comes into the house, chases Lou and the girls back upstairs, busts into the room, yada yada yada. It's another full week of strips without hiding her hair or Superman. And then finally, just as the bad guy is about to put a, put a bullet in Lois Lane's brain, after already killing one guy, mind you, Superman finally decides to crawl in the window and, you know, do something. It's like, what the heck? Where was Superman during all that? I've just said it over and over this episode, and like I said, I'm sorry to keep saying it, but it's ridiculous. 
Now, don't get me wrong, from here to the end of the story is very action-packed and exciting. I mean, there is a stupid moment that I'll get to, but we are we are ten strips from the end. Superman should have been involved in doing more than chasing after villains for two panels long before now. Uh, strips 501 to 506, I already really talked about these. So, strip 507, I like the panel here of Bauer smashing through the door. Um, maybe it was a little over the top, the way the door is splintering like it does, but... Uh, like I said, Bowers is a hoss. You know, he's 350 pounds of, of muscle, so I'm okay with it with him being able to smash Superman style through a door. Strip 508. We are three strips from the end, and oh hey, look, Superman finally confronts the villain. What a concept. Strip 509. But don't get your hopes up that's, that the story is going to get more super duper awesome just because they finally decided to involve our hero. Because here's the big climax to this two-month storyline, and Superman defeats the villain with... Flower. Yes, it was cute, and it was clever, and it even made me laugh when I was reading the story. But sadly, the laughter was more because it's an absurd ending to a story loaded with absurdities. When I have to wait two months for Superman to show up in a story... I want to see him do more than end the threat than dump flour on the guy's head. I mean, come on! <sighs> Overall, this just gets a big thumbs down for me. I mean, it was boring. It was full of ridiculous moments. It took far too long for Superman to get involved, even though he was a presence as a disguised, uh, as a disguised disguise for the majority of the story. And worst of all... I think a lot of it might have been fixed with just minor changes in the art or a slight rewrite of the script to add in more Superman moments to the story. It might not have been easy to work in Superman moments when Clark is disguised, but I think it could have been done. And I know I've complained about, in the past, I've complained about them shoehorning in Superman moments where they don't really need to be, but there comes a time when you need to get your hero into the strip or you're reading a, a story about Clark Kent, uh, super spy, rather than Clark Kent, Superman. Uh, on an art note, thankfully, the art through a good portion of the story is is really beautiful. When he actually shows up, Superman looks great. The thugs have mostly distinct looks, um, especially Bowers, which is really good. There are a few awkward panels or moments. You know, I've mentioned a couple of those in my notes. But more often than not, it's it's a really really strong outing in this uh, in this set of strips, and really, <laughs> I, I hate saying this, but really the only thing that keeps the story from being a total loss. Definitely check out the show notes for this episode and look at the panels I put up. I may actually post a couple extra panels if I have time to scan them in. Uh, Boring and Commissaro really have knocked it out of the park in the two stories they've worked on together and it's easy to see why they were paired up so much in the golden age if you are a masochist or you know having trouble sleeping or just for some reason beyond my fathoming want to read this story or if you just want to look at the pretty pretty art you can find it in the second volume of dailies from kitchen sink press as mentioned last time i covered a storyline from the dailies DC Comics recently redesigned their website and has sadly removed the 
daily newspaper strips that were there. So, unfortunately, buying the volume is uh, really your only option. But they are great reprints, as I've I've you know praised these reprints before. They're very clean and very easy to read, and really not too expensive for the amount of material you get. So, definitely check them out. Kids, comics! Hey, Michael! Yes? We have to record a promo for our podcast. I've got one. Read our podcast. Read our podcast. You do know this is an audio medium. Watch our podcast. But you can watch podcasts, but not ours, because let's face it, we've got faces for radio. Uh, no, wait, I've got it. Give me a second, right? What? Just listen to our podcast. Listen to our podcast. Snap it. It's short, sweet. I'm liking it. It's good. It's great. Not exactly telling people what our podcast is about, though, is it? We read comics. We read comics. That's true. That's good. Liking it. Liking this pitch. Carry on. Right. We talk about comics. We do. We talk about comics. We read comics, and then we talk about them, because we can't talk about them before we read them. Excellent. Keep going. And then... We sing! Badly! Yes. Well, badly is purely subjective, but how many other comic book podcasts do you know where people sing? Is Every Thursday at aplayland.podomatic.com Superman, a name known throughout the world to all ages, races, creeds, and colors. But what about those behind the shield? The men and women who for over 75 years have given us a legend. These are their stories. Joseph Ward, perhaps better known by his shortened name of H.J. Ward, was born March 8, 1909, in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. He was among eight children born to Charles and Mary Ward, five sons, one daughter, plus two more children that died in infancy. Ward's father worked as a postal carrier and later a stevedore for a shipping company in the city of Philadelphia. Raised as a Catholic, Ward himself entered a parochial high school and following graduation, he gained employment as a cartoonist at the Philadelphia Inquirer while honing his craft by taking night classes at the Philadelphia School of Industrial Arts, which is today known as the University of Arts in Philadelphia. In 1931, Ward traveled to New York City and began showing his portfolio to a variety of pulp magazine publishers. Eventually, he made his first sale to Wild West Stories, and complete novel magazine publications. Soon, Ward's covers were appearing on a wide range of pulp magazines, including Argosy, Double Detective, Easy Money, Prison Life Stories, Ace High Western, Rangeland Love, Red Star Detective, and Red Star Mystery. In August 1934, he married Viola Conley, whom he had met a few years earlier when Viola was working as a typist for a Philadelphia publishing firm. 
The two married and the following year gave birth to their only child, a daughter named Patricia. Ward continued working out of a studio in his home, selling covers to publishers including Muncie, Dell, Popular, and most notably Trojan Publications, which was owned by Harry Donenfeld. His work continued to appear in even more pulp magazines of the day, including Tattletales, Bedtime Stories, Pep Stories, Spicy Mystery Stories, Super Detective, and Double Detective. During this time, Ward also painted many memorable images of classic pop culture characters, such as the Lone Ranger and the Green Hornet and Kato. Several of these images are among the earliest visual images of those pulp icons. As one of Trojan's top artists, Ward also tackled another heroic legend, when around 1940 he was commissioned to paint a portrait of Superman to use as a promotional image for the Superman radio serial. Ward was reportedly paid $100 for creating the painting, which is said to be the first official portrait of comics's foremost hero. It was originally intended to be used as a signed fan photo given to listeners in order to promote the show, but it doesn't seem to have actually ever been used in that way. What resulted, however, is an iconic image of the Man of Steel, shown standing akimbo on a rocky cliff. His cape blows majestically in the breeze, while the city he protects stands faintly on the horizon behind him. A version of the painting was used on the cover of the tabloid-sized limited collector's edition C-31 comic from 1974, and has been reproduced on and in other publications throughout the years. However, the original painting, measuring roughly 5 feet tall and 4 feet wide, hung for years in the offices of DC Comics in New York City. The painting seemingly disappeared following Harry Donenfeld's retirement in 1957, but was later discovered hanging in the library of Lehman College in the Bronx. The exact series of events that led to the painting being part of the library has not been unraveled, but the image still hangs there today. On April 13, 1944, Ward was inducted into the United States Army as part of the forces during World War II. However, soon after enlistment, doctors discovered a cancerous tumor in his lung, one possibly caused by years of heavy smoking. Unfortunately, upon discovery, the cancer was quite advanced, and the prognosis was not good. Ward died less than a year later, on February 7, 1945, at the very young age of 35. This is Bane. Listen to this promo for thebatmanuniverse.net or I'll break you. Thebatmanuniverse.net, your source for all things related to the Dark Knight, including the latest news related to the comics, movies, TV, merchandise, video games, and much more. Each month, an assortment of podcasts are produced, including a bi-monthly comic podcast, special commentaries and interviews, the Batman Universe specials, and a podcast which delves into TV, movie, merchandise, video game news, and beyond. Keep up to date with everything about Batman, get to know the kooky and lovable casts of the podcasts, listen to in-depth conversations about the latest direct-to-video movies, and increase your knowledge about the Dark Knight and his family, only at thebatmanuniverse.net. I'm Dustin from the BatmanUniverse.net, and I approve this message.
stay on. Let every breed of Mongo live together in peace. Wait, he said Mongo, didn't he? That's wrong character, wrong universe, and wrong galaxy. Hold on just one sec. Ah, here we go. Flash Legacies, a podcast connecting the adventures of Wally West, the third hero to be known as The Flash. Join me, Dave Walker, in my bi-weekly journey as I look at Wally's career from when he first donned the mantle of The Flash all the way up to the return of Barry Allen. Find me at flashlegacies.limpson.com I recommend doing a Google Images search for H.J. Ward and taking a look at some of his work. He was an incredible artist in the pulp genre, and even though he died at a very young age, he left behind what I've seen called some of Pulp's greatest works. Also, if you're interested in a more thorough look at Ward's life and career, you can track down a book simply called H.J. Ward by David Saunders. It's a very well-researched biography into his life, and it reprints many high-quality images uh, of his work that I believe came directly from Ward's family. And if you're interested in a little more behind-the-scenes info on the discovery of the painting at the Lehman College Library, you can go back and listen to episode 33 of this show, where I talked about it in more detail. One thing that I've discovered about the painting since I did that episode is that Ward's original painting seems to have been different than the one most commonly seen, including on the cover of that limited collector's edition issue. In the original, Superman's shield was an inverted triangle, much like it is in the first comic book appearances of the character, where in the painting as it exists today, it is the the flat-bottomed pentagon shape with a very stylized S inside. And the character's face is also different, giving him a broader smile and a more pronounced squint. And the character's hair was also redone, modeling it closer to the comic book version. I couldn't find much by way of information on the variances, but obviously it was redone sometime in the early to mid-40s. And I was also unable to find whether it was retouched by Ward himself or another artist, but I will keep looking into it. But that's it for this episode. I want to thank you all for joining me, even for this lackluster story. Next episode, I will be joined by a special guest for a look at Superman number 7, which actually has some entertaining stories in it, so please, please come back. Before then, I also want to invite you to stop by the website at greatcrypton.com for show notes and all the back episodes of the show. The site will also give you the RSS feed and the iTunes link both of which can be used to subscribe to the show. If you use iTunes, I'd appreciate it if you could take a few minutes to leave an iTunes review. I really do think it helps people find the show and and know that it's worth listening to. If you'd like to send me feedback in other ways, you can also leave replies to the show's posts at the site, or you can email me at thrillingadventures at greatcrypton.com. 
And you can also follow the show on both Facebook and Twitter to not only get updates whenever I have a new episode or show-related news, but to also give your comments that way. And please don't forget the Superman homepage and the Superman Podcast Network. Updates are posted at both sites whenever there's a new episode. And finally, I want to invite you to check out Green Lantern's Light, where J. David Weeder, Jeffrey Taylor, and I talk monthly about the late bronze and post-crisis adventures of Hal Jordan, John Stewart, Guy Gardner, and the entire Green Lantern Corps. As always, Superman was created by Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster and is copyright DC Comics. So thanks again for listening to The Thrilling Adventures of Superman, and I will talk to you later. Goodbye. folks, this is where the show stinger normally goes. Something funny, at least in theory, that relates to the story or my comments about it. Since I feel a little bad that this story was, well, so bad, and we barely had any Superman antics in it, plus I've been on kind of a superhero theme music kick lately. This episode, I'm leaving you with something that is very much Superman. And so... Ladies and gentlemen, may I present Mr. John Williams.